Well, good morning again. My name is Ryan Moore, and if I haven't had a chance to, to meet you, I'd love an opportunity to do so after the service. We are in uh, a sermon series titled The Life of David, Learning to Live Out of God's Grace uh, for His Glory, and we come to a passage today where if this wasn't true up till now, it will, it will be after we read this text this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Samuel, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'll read that for us here in just a second. Just two things uh, I, I want to bring to your attention that you'll have in your mind as we read this, just some things to note that I won't talk much about during the sermon. One, what's interesting about this whole chapter that I'll read is how it moves, and there's a lot of things happening, and we don't get any dialogue between the people involved. There's no commentary about them, about what, what's going on. The spotlight remains on David, and we'll, we'll see, I think, why that's the case. Second, though, notice how many times the word sent or send is used here. That also gives us a little bit of insight into where David is at this point. And this has been going on for quite some time as, as we enter this, this season of his life where in the past we've been looking at the rise of David um, as we started out with Goliath and then him going into the wilderness. And now we're dealing with the reign of David. And there are different tests here. And this is where we come to a place in his life where he doesn't do so well. And we have to make sense of that. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word here. As I'm sure for many of you, as you are familiar with Goliath and the story of David, you're probably familiar with Bathsheba and Uriah as well. Chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David... Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, 
and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field, shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he, was made, so that he made him drunk. In the evening he went out to, to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, and he did not go down to his house. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they, should, that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubaseth? But not, did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. And the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of David's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Verse 25, David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would do a miracle, and by miracle that you would soften hardened hearts, that we may have eyes to see and ears to hear of your truth. Help us, teach us at this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was with an old friend last weekend, and we have a mutual friend who two years ago, woke up, he was, I believe he was on a golf outing with some friends, and he woke up that morning getting ready to play with a scratchy throat, and had a little difficult talking. It was kind of strange, but nothing too strange, and so he goes down into the, the lobby where he was, and he goes into the gift store 
because they have other things there. And he goes up to the counter, and the way he tells it, says, I just said, I want every single throat lozenge you have in this place <laughs> right now. Um, and I don't know if he got them all, but I'm sure he got enough uh, for the day. And he said he just started eating throat lozenges all day, all day. Um, unfortunately, nothing changed. As a matter of fact, it got a little worse. Had trouble speaking across the room and those kinds of things. And so when he got back from the trip, he, of course, went to go see the doctor. And after several trips of going to see many doctors, it was discovered that he had stage four throat cancer. Now, thankfully, with a team of doctors, right, they were able to treat him. And they weren't really sure at first um, if he was going to make this, but he did. And as of today, he's as cancer-free as anybody can be at this point in the situation. But I tell this story because we actually had some, you know, a, a good laugh, you might think. Thinking back to those lozenges at the hotel that he described. Hoping that they would solve the problem going on with his throat. Just, here we go. Maybe this next one will do it. <clears throat> Not knowing exactly what was the cause of all the symptoms. And I would have done the same. Wouldn't have phased me at all. I would have, I would have done the same. But it's worth underscoring, there's no amount, obviously, we'll state the obvious, no amount of throat lozenges is going to fix what? Stage 4 cancer. Something else will need to be done. We are not great at self-diagnosis. I know I claim to be, but my wife will tell you that I am wrong 99% of the time, if not 100. But we're not great at it because we don't really know, just in general, what's going on inside of us. Well, we need teams to tell us what's going on inside of us. Um, or we just take a bunch of Advil, and hopefully that will fix it. But we need doctors and nurses to help us out with that. And, and it's, not far, it's not a far leap from, from there to go to the spiritual realm as well. That we're, we're, we're pretty bad at diagnosing ourselves spiritually too. And much of what we're going to talk about in this sort of part one, part two series today and next Sunday and for this morning is, is sin itself. And I want to be clear about how I talk about this because when I say that we're not good at diagnosing ourselves spiritually, we can say we are sinful. Like we can say we have sin in us, but I want to go a little bit further than that. Do we even know what that means? Well, what is sin actually, what, what is it? What has it done to you? Is it just something you have to worry about with a few things, or is it actually part of everything you do? Your thoughts, your motives? How bad is it? This is what I mean by self-diagnosis. We are not good at this. We often underestimate, underestimate what sin does in our lives, how it affects our decision-making, and in many ways, treat it like stage four cancer, by throwing a bunch of lozenges at it. The question I'm leading with this morning is what is really inside you as the Bible wants to show you? Next week's the fun week, right? How are we going to deal with it? Sort of fun. 
That's not this morning. What is inside you? What's in your heart? I want you to answer that question, not for other people that you're thinking about that need to be here this morning. I want you to answer it for you. What is here? Because depending upon what you think about sin and what it is and what it's capable of determines how you go about treating it. And until we see what it is, then we will have no hope of acknowledging it, of, of, of dealing with it. And so as we come to this point in the life of David, the story of Bathsheba and Uriah, we are confronted with a David, to quote Eugene Peterson, that we simply aren't prepared for. And I think that's a good description. <laughs> because it's almost out of nowhere. Sure, David has had a bad moment here and there, but this is something very different. And it's here in the story that we begin to see ourselves and David, perhaps for the first time, appropriately, not as God's anointed king, but as a sinner in need of grace. As I said, we're going to take this story in two parts because there's so much here, but ultimately it's a story of grace and repentance, of who God is. And we'll see more of that next week, but before we can talk about how the problem should be dealt with, we must start with understanding what is really inside of us. Because if we can't see and acknowledge what sin really is, not only, as I said earlier, is there no hope in fixing it, I would, I would go on to say that Christianity for you will, will hardly ever make sense. And it might be something you can try for a while, like you can manage this, you can do this, but you'll either get burnt out or too angry because you can't do enough to fix yourself or, or you're just going to be mad at everybody else who's not doing enough to fix themselves. It just won't make sense. And so for the rest of our lives, we'll ignore it, ignore sin, or as I said earlier, treat ourselves with lozenges to something that is appropriately paralleled to stage four cancer. What we need is something way more powerful that will, to quote Psalm 51, which we'll look more at next week, wash us white as snow. So let's look at one thing this morning. What's really inside you, spiritually speaking, in the way of sin, and pray that the Lord gives us eyes to see it in ourselves as we look at David. So two things, two questions to guide our discussion. What did David do? And then why is this story here? What did David do? Why is this story here? So let's take that first one. What did David do? Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon. What happened? I, I read that, I've read this text I don't know how many times. And I love how the biblical writers decided to start this story. It happened. Verses 1 to 5 describe to us what, what happened first here, and that is David sees a beautiful woman bathing on the roof, and he decides to send for her. 
Now, she wasn't just some woman whom he happened to spot. This was the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. And who are they? This is important. Eliam and Uriah were some of David's closest, most valiant men. They were more than just friends. And in some ways, tighter than family. For these men put their life on the line for David when he was hiding from Saul, then the king of Israel, back in 1 Samuel. They were part of a team called David's Mighty Men. You might have heard of this, uh, but they were a band of brothers like no other. And we know this because 2 Samuel 23, in the end, records this list of David's mighty men. You can go check it out after this afternoon. And they are there. So David sends for Bathsheba, who is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, two of his most faithful, loyal friends. And what does David do? At best, commits adultery with her, at best. Now, nowhere do we have dialogue between David and Bathsheba, as I said earlier, and I hope you noted that as we went through this text. Nobody's really giving commentary on whether or not this is okay. Is it what's going on? We have no reason to believe that Bathsheba was in some way trying to catch David's eye. I've heard that before. In fact, I would argue the other way, because she is lamenting the death of her husband at the end of this text. In fact, if anything, given the power dynamics with David as king, the question becomes, what choice did Bathsheba really have? When the king sends for you, you go, which makes it something worse than actual consenting adultery. And so I start there just to say, don't romanticize this. Don't try to justify that this was probably a flirty thing going on between them over time. That's not what this was. Bathsheba comes to David soon after and tells him these words, I am pregnant. And David, instead of owning his sin and going before the Lord, Eliam, Uriah, Bathsheba, all of Israel for that matter, as king and asking for forgiveness, he plots a way to cover his tracks. And so he sends for Uriah. Uriah comes to David. They engage in some small talk, and in the first conversation, David encourages Uriah to go home and what? Wash your feet. And what that is is a euthanism for go have sex with your wife. You've been off the battle. You need some time at home. Go wash your feet. David wants him to go home, obviously, because he is trying to what? Cover up what he has done. Uriah leaves, but doesn't go down to his house and instead sleeps at the door of the king's house. So David inquires of him, why did you not go down to your house? Verse 10, to which Uriah responds, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths. My Lord, Joab, and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will do this thing. David invites Uriah for dinner where he tries a second time to get him to go home. This time it's by serving too much wine. But this doesn't work either. In verse 13, and in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. As one commentary notes, Uriah, drunk, is more pious than David, sober. 
That's hard. So to summarize, David has sinned in taking Bathsheba. She's now pregnant. Instead of coming clean, he tries to cover it all up by getting Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife, but it doesn't work. And so now, almost without thinking about it, as the narrative flows, David goes to plan B. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, sent it by him, by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. This is the guy you've been at war with for so many years, who's probably saved your life who knows how many times. And you're writing this letter to go to Joab, and you put it in his own hand. Uriah doesn't know it, but he is carrying his own death warrant. This is diabolical by any stretch. Verse 16, Joab is now involved and complies. He sends Uriah to the place where the best Ammonite fighters would be to ensure his death. But notice Joab improves on David's plan. Can't just have Uriah die. That would look too suspicious. We need a few others. And that's what he does. So now do we not just have the death of one man, we have the death of several because of David. Then Joab sends the message back to David that Uriah has died and instructs him on what to say. And since there were more casualties than just Uriah, it's possible that Joab was concerned for how David might react. And so that's why you get this sort of weird dialogue there, like tell him this. And if he gets angry and he starts saying all these things, just tell him Uriah the Hittite died and it'll all be better. That's kind of what, what the feel is there. To which David responds, and I tried to emphasize it in the reading, do not let this matter displease you. Encourage him. That's about as callous as you can get. But just like that, the problem's solved. No, we're not prepared for such a David. So let's ask again, what did David do? And you might have heard me say this in in another sermon. Just looking at this text here, he coveted, he lied, he stole, he committed adultery, and he murdered. That's half of the Ten Commandments right there. All in one. You can probably throw another in there if you want to. This is what he did. This is what's inside David. Always has been. And so either this surprises you Or maybe for the first time, you're empathizing with David. Because it's here that we begin to see that there's something wrong with David that isn't going to be fixed with willpower or a recommitment to follow the rules. 
or just we just need to find a better king, you know, in town somewhere. Or perhaps even just better teaching. I don't know. It's also here, though, that we hopefully see that the problem is bigger than David. That it's not just an issue with David personally, but with all of us, that though my sins may not look like David's this morning, the seeds of what led David to act out like this are in all of us. Do you see that this morning? Do you see that? Or when we come across texts like this, do we just do this? Like we distance ourselves. That's not me. I'm more of a chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12, chapter 12, David. This is what's in David. Do we see that the same seeds are inside us as well? Because this gets to the second question, why is this text here? So let's turn to that. So this story for centuries has really destroyed all paradigms of what people think or should think about Christianity. It has destroyed all paradigms for who people think that they are. And it has destroyed all paradigms of who people think God is. So, for example, if if you think that that the Bible, right, is a book that's just about morals and how to be a good person, and it's it's a part of of it, but if that's all that it is to you, or if you think Christianity is about doing the most you can, the most good you can, why leave this story in here? Why is it here? Why take your best man, David, a man after God's own heart, by the way, and that's not ever removed, by the way. We'll get to that next week. Why take this and leave this story to be read by billions over the years? And if we just back up a little bit, right, you had a good thing going with him, with that whole Goliath thing. Man, he really believed, took down the giant. We can work with that. And then he did pretty good out in the wilderness, too. He didn't, didn't kill Saul when he had a chance to. That was some serious self-discipline. But this story, it makes no sense if the purpose of the Bible or Christianity for you is to just be a moral person. Why leave this story here? And for some of us this morning, this is the question we are wrestling with. I'm not really sure what to do with this story, actually. I'm not really sure where to find myself in it, is what I mean. which is a bigger question of what the Bible is about. So let me suggest then that this story is here because the Bible isn't about those things. That's one option. The Bible isn't about, right, a book uh, about simply about morals or how to live a good life, nor is Christianity about a bunch of people, you know, being nice and doing nice things to please a, a mild temper God. It's not therapeutic deism. 
This story is here because the Bible is about a God who is in the business of bringing salvation to a bunch of Davids who don't deserve it and never could. David becomes more like us in this text, doesn't he? But he does it for no other reason than he loves them. People who do massive harm to themselves and others who don't deserve God's love but get it anyway That's why this story is here. And that's grace. As one pastor puts it, the Bible is about a God who persistently works with people who do not deserve it, who could never deserve it, who do not seek the Lord's love, and who do not appreciate it when they get it. Is is that your understanding of Scripture? Of the Bible, of, of what grace is really about. It all has to do with what you think is inside of you. This is just a little thing that it flares up every once in a while, but I, re- I can really handle it. I really focus on it. And what I just read to you is offensive, probably, at best. That's why this text is here, to show us that even the best among us, those after God's own heart, still need a Savior. And there's nothing better that you and I could hear this morning than that. Because when you see that you're ready for grace, which means you're ready for Jesus, you're you're ready to meet God. That's where David is. So we have to ask, what about me? What about you this morning? Am I any better? Are you any better this morning? See, if David is capable of such a fall, if he is capable of such an act that goes beyond imagination, well, then what about me? We have to ask these questions if next Sunday is going to make any sense for us. What about me? So what the Bible wants to show us or remind us, as one scholar puts it, is that the seeds of the most despicable deeds imaginable were present in David, the most dedicated of hearts towards God. Let me read that again. The seeds of the most despicable deeds imaginable were present in the most dedicated of hearts towards God. That's David. Was there anybody more devoted? That's what is inside David, spiritually speaking. What about you? What about me? Do you think you're capable of this? It happened to David. Do you think you're any better? Do I think I'm any better? This is the question the text is putting in for us. And see, I want to be honest with you this morning, and I hope it gives you the privilege to be honest as well. When I ask myself, do I think I'm better? Yes, I do. I do. I look at this, and I'm like, I don't associate with people like David. 
let alone consider myself to be somewhere close to him in need of such whatever he needs at this point. But I do think I'm better, and see, that's why I need this story. I need the Holy Spirit to show me that the seeds of the most despicable deeds imaginable are right here in a heart that is dedicated towards God. And that's what's truly inside my spiritual heart. Or else, one, I will leave these doors today thinking I'm better. Which was probably where David was when he sent for Bathsheba in the first place. I'm better. This doesn't apply to me. But second, I need the Holy Spirit to show me that what's really inside my heart so that I can learn to cry out, mercy. And this is why next week's not going to make sense if we don't, if we don't deal with, with this. If I don't have the Holy Spirit showing me what's really here, why would I cry out for mercy? Which is where we'll be led next week. It's what David needs at this point and where we'll turn next Sunday, but it's also what we need because until we see what's inside, you'll have no idea how to fix it. So do you see that this morning about yourself? Can you say, you know, if, if it happened to David, it can happen to me. And maybe not in this particular way, maybe in other ways. And maybe for some of us here, hey, we've been down that road. We know, we know it's there. And we're trying to believe that the other is true. Please come back next week. But for some of us this morning, are you better? Can you see that sin, whatever you thought of it before, is going to require something more powerful than the occasional church visit or more willpower on your behalf to fix it? That it truly is deeper and darker and more destructive than you want to admit. Because if you can, perhaps your next question is how should it be dealt with? And that's a great place to be. Because what it means is you're beginning to see what the Bible is about. You're beginning to see what Christianity is about. You're beginning to see what's really in you, not just what's in other people, or what's even in you sometimes, but what's there, and that perhaps it's way worse than you ever imagined. Because once you get to the end of that sentence, what's standing on the other side of that thought is a God who says, I know. I know. Let me make you clean. Without jumping ahead, God's already in the process of doing that for David because he loves him. The best grace, one of the best grace passages in the Old Testament is 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. That's grace. We'll get there next week. God says, I know, let me make you clean. And as we get to that point, we turn to the cross. And we see what that ultimately looks like. I want to give this sermon the last word as the text does, verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
It's the only commentary we get from anybody in this whole story, which I think is fascinating. David will suffer much from this point on as, as, as it pertains to consequences for his actions and, and the way that the Lord will deal with him. So let's not think that grace is all about zero consequences. Our sin naturally has consequences at that. But this displeasure, right, this displeasure in the Lord towards David and what he had done, it is the same displeasure that you and I feel or that the Lord feels sorry about any and all of our sins, no matter how big or small this morning. It's, a, it, it's, an, it's an element of the text that doesn't just go away with David. It is there for us this morning as well. And so grace will have to come to David in the same way that it comes to you this morning as well. Through Jesus. So we come to this table. Who will take all of the displeasure of God for our sins so that we might what become pleasing to him in every single way. And so while we stop to examine what sin is today in preparation for next week, what is truly inside of us, all that we've discussed this morning, let us do that knowing that God in Jesus Christ has already answered the most pressing question and, the, and has met your biggest need in the cross. He is your solution this morning, your only option for dealing with the sin that resides in you this morning. It's often only when we see the solution that we can understand the depth and nature of what the problem. So certainly if you're communing with us this morning, I want you to think about that. As I'm maybe wherever you are struggling with what is inside me here, like what is sin really? As you look at the solution to that problem, would that help to magnify and draw your eyes to what's really there? To the severity of it? To the problem that it is? How does the cross of Jesus for your sin show you the extent of the real problem? So my prayer for us as we carry that with us this, this morning and into next week, that we come back next week uh, knowing that it is Jesus' shed blood for our sin that is the correct diagnosis for what is truly here. That he leads us to himself and gives us every opportunity to, to come to him to be made clean because of his grace. There isn't a place in this whole narrative where you're going to have to really learn what it means to live out of the grace of God and to find yourself with David. Chapter, 12, chapter 11, dealing with what is here. Let us come to this table knowing that it's finished, but also recognizing what it costs. And let that be an indication for what the problem really was. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story, for giving us insight to your king, your servant's heart, his life, could have been easily disposed of. But you want us to read it because you want us to know who you are. And one of the ways we find out who you are is understanding more of who we are. This is how this works. Your spirit opens our eyes to ourselves. So I pray that we would give that a chance. We would look deep into our hearts and, and ask you to reveal who we are. 
that we wouldn't distance ourselves from David at this point, that we would actually draw closer to him and understanding his need is our need as well. We need the grace of Jesus. We need his shed blood to make us white as snow. Would you see us back next week to talk more about what that looks like as we look at repentance and what that actually means for us as your people? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.